jazz. Bastard. Yeah, welcome to Jazz Bastard Podcast 188. I'm Pat. I'm Mike. Thank you, Mike and Pat. And we have a special guest here. Mike, do you want to introduce him? Sure. Today we're doing an interview with saxophonist David Binney, who is a recent, or I think re- recent, recently re- relocated, you can correct me, David, to the West Coast, where I saw him recently, and, and uh, we've recently been listening to some of his music, and we're here to talk to him today about uh, his directions in music and his new release that's coming out shortly. Hi, David. Hi. How are you guys? So you're, you're in a park right now, David? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, there's a park right behind my my place here in LA, and, and it's uh, it's just I've been in editing and mixing and just staring at the computer since like eight in the morning, and I'm Ooh, just boy. I can't. I had to get out. It's beautiful out, and you know, so it was you know eighty something degrees today. So I'm just like in the park, but I, I'm like literally fifty feet from my apartment. No, that's cool, but you, you're going to destroy the myth of like late sleeping jazzbos who spend all day in bed and don't, you know, rise till three in the afternoon. 8 a.m., that's before, I, you got up before me. Are you serious? You know, I, I used to be like that. I was always working like on my stuff until like six, seven in the morning sometimes. And then I'd go to bed and get up at like one. But, um, you know, when I got married and we moved out here and she gets up really early, just, I don't know why, she just likes to get up early, so I just get up with her. Even if I go to bed late, I just get up, you know, so I, I'm often up working, like, I start early, you know. Wow, okay. Yeah. Okay, well, that's pretty cool. Um, so, uh, I think uh, the way the way I kind of want to start is just to kind of talk a little bit about how you got on our radar and, and um, maybe ask you a little bit about... Uh, a particular night, uh, the particular night that I got uh, really uh, excited about your music. Not that I was I wasn't excited before, but I it was it was an electric night as far as I was concerned. Um, I don't know if you remember the show well, but it was um, the night before Thanksgiving, um, and the show was uh, at the Blue Whale, a club that I had never been to before in L.A. and I just. Mm-hmm. I was headed up to my sister's for Thanksgiving, and mm. uh, I, I came up a night early because I, n- I don't get up to L.A. often enough from San Diego, and I thought, I'm going to get up there, and I'm going to see some jazz, damn it. And um, and yours was the name I recognized, and I just it was my first time in the club and my first time hearing you live, and uh, I was kind of blown away by, by what I heard. I, I don't know if you guys felt it, but I thought you were having a great night. Well, you know, I... I- you know, I, I don't remember the particular night. Actually, I'm thinking the night before Thanksgiving. Um, I mean, I'm there once a month, and and uh, it was with a, the bunch of young guys, right? It was all the like yeah, it was uh, Tim Lafay and and Nick Reinhardt and Eric Gardner. Oh, it was a totally oh that was a different thing. Okay, that was that. I thought it was with the young guy. Um, yeah, okay, that gig. Yeah, that was super fun. Yeah, that, that's always fun. That's a totally different thing than I do. Like, I played last night with my band. I have these young guys in the band here that's kind of com- really composed, and um, there's a lot of improvisation, but there's a lot of composition, and we really know it. So we just recorded a new record, but um, that's the thing I usually do. But once in a while, I do something like that with Tim and Nick and Eric or something, and um, and it's really just improvised, completely improvised. But um, yeah, that was that's always fun. That's what you said at the beginning. You you, you said uh, um, something like, uh, "Well, let's see how this goes." 
and right. you guys just started. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, so uh, is that a foursome? The four of you play with some regularity, or? Yeah, since um since I moved back out here, and then Tim's out here now, and we met Nick. I met Nick and Eric here. Um, I didn't know them when I when I lived in New York, even though I would come out here once in a while. But um, yeah, we just we sort of started this thing, and we we've done it maybe three or four times but we decided to make it a band it's just that tim's been on the road for so long that i've actually done things since with eric and and um and nick but tim hasn't been around but when he gets back and when we're all back we're gonna i think like go into the studio and do something but it's a yeah we just improvise but um you know i have a long history of doing that because i did it for years off and on at the 55 bar and tim was involved when he was starting in the 90 early 90s actually um when he was in New York. And so we just kind of con- continued that tradition here once in a while. So, um, yeah, I, I like to balance it out. Like I-, I do these things that are very composed and, and acoustic. Sometimes I do those really kind of freak out electric improv things, and you know that's that was that night. Right. So um, just to be clear, Tim is the the bass player, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then um, Nick is guitar drums. He's the guitar player. Nick okay. Reinhardt. And then Eric Gardner on drums. Uh, yeah. And uh, so the reason I guess I was so taken with that um, is that I've I've seen um, increasingly when I've gone to see live jazz, I've seen, you know, the laptops come out and the looping and stuff. Um, but I had never seen it done quite so uh, effectively or compellingly as, as you guys did it. And what was really striking to me was kind of everyone, you know, had their own loopity loop thing going on there. There was a, there was a, at certain points of the performance, it was kind of like all, all everyone, everyone, but Eric was kind of bent over a right. laptop, you know, and yeah. playing with, stuff uh how how does that come about i thought you guys did that very well very effectively is there a lot of you know is that a high wire act like sometimes it's a disaster or what well it's it's never a disaster but because to be honest with you we've been doing this for a long time just improvising it's just like any profession really um i have no i'm not even slightly nervous to get up in front of any crowd with good musicians and completely have nothing planned because I just know that something will happen if you're with the right people. And those are definitely the right people. So I, it's always been good. Like every gig we've done with that has just been like, yeah, that's amazing. That's why we just started, we decided to, to record it and, uh, and, you know, make it a rec, uh, a band and, and tour with it and stuff, which we'll eventually do. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's something we've done for a long time individually also. And like I said, me and Tim, in various forms in New York and, and, you know, it's just a thing like, uh, improv, improvising has been sort of our lives for years. And, and, um, you know, we, we kind of just know what we're doing, I guess, in a way it's just, it's, uh, it's the language, you know, we're speaking to each other on, uh, in the moment and, and feeling what something needs or doesn't need. And, and, 
you know, with taste and everything, if you, if you do that right, it, it comes across to the audience. And, you know, I think with that band, we really have it. Now, with these young guys that I play with, I've kind of had to mentor them with that. They're all really technically unbelievably uh, unbelievable, but they sometimes in the improvising thing, they don't get the aesthetics of it a little bit. Now they do. I've been working with them for two years. Now it's kind of unbelievable. But, um, but you know, that's that's when you really appreciate, like, how good some of the people I've worked with are uh, when you work with people that don't understand that. You realize, wow, this is work, you know? Right. Whereas usually it doesn't feel like that at all. It just feels like, wow, that's a great moment. That's a great moment, you know? Right. I was going to ask um, just one thing I wondered, uh, and, and we'll talk about, like, your origins and the beginning of your career and kind of your new music and your new release uh, in, in a bit. But um, just a little bit more on that night. Uh, the one thing I kind of wondered was, you know, sometimes is it harder to like main, maintain? I'm, I'm wondering with, with the technology and the other stuff going on, all the things you're doing, is it harder to maintain connection with the other guys in the group? And also is it harder to maintain a kind of connection with the audience? Cause sometimes they can't even see you. I mean, we can hear you and it's, Really right. good, but sometimes, like you know, how how necessary is it, or do you not even notice it at this point? You know, the the immediate connection with the with the audience when maybe you're, you know, fiddling with the laptop and and playing, you know, these these things. Is well, it, do you lose any of that or no? No, I think you know, as I tell you know, I teach a lot and I talk to students about you know the audience and connection with the audience. Also, I mean, you know, a lot of people say you know, improvising and stuff is is something that you you sort of do um as, i don't what's the word it's not selfish it's individually or, or with with disregard to the audience sometimes but i think that's a complete wrong approach i think every you know we're performers so i think at at any moment we're we're thinking about the audience and with the way i do it is i literally visualize visualize myself in the audience at any at moment and, and i kind of test myself is this good would i like this uh do i need to stop doing this uh what needs to change you know all that kind of stuff is constantly rapid firing in, in our all i think all of our brains so i think we're well aware of what we're doing at any moment and how it's pro at least probably coming across of course you can't ever tell who's in the audience so at this there's we're sort of assuming that our audience is somebody who's like-minded but um you know you never know but uh in, in a place like the the um the whale of course you know most of the people are fans of ours so we sort of know you know how what they like and 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 we just kind of try to expand on on that you know what we give them things that we you know, we've, we have a long history of doing, but we're always trying to expand on it. And usually, you know, we can tell if it's, if it's good or not. And the audience is, of course, by their reaction, you can tell also. But right. it's always on our minds. And, you know, the, the interesting thing about that, too, is there was a lot of electronic stuff going on. It was a heavily electronic gig, but there was actually no laptop involved in that. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I wasn't. Yeah. I, I could. I was sitting in the back, and I, I just saw people bent over monitors and things, and it looked, you know, <laughs> I couldn't all, tell what uh, was happening. It was all p uh, pedals. Um, right. I was playing the saxophone acoustically through pedals, and then manipulating the pedals. Um, and Tim was doing the same with uh, the bass, and and then 
um, Nick with the guitar. We're all actually playing the instrument just uh, acoustically, basically, um, and and then playing it through pedals and then manipulating the pedals. And that's what we're doing there. Now there are there have been things we've done recently, especially me and Tim. We've even done a couple of uh, duo concerts where we do use laptops, but um, but not not in, in that band. We have right. we've been right. just using pedals. I, I was sitting in the in the back, and I was going to come up and chat with you after the show, but um, you had a lot of folks talking to you, and and uh, and it was if you remember that was a miserably cold and rainy night, and I thought I'm just going to go to bed at this point. Um, but uh, <laughs> I was I, I don't I don't know if you noticed, but I'm pretty sure maybe I'm wrong. Uh, Theo Croker was at the show. He was sitting right next to me. Uh, I think. Um, I I don't know. I mean, I know what Theo looks like, and I think I've met him once or twice, but I I didn't notice him that night. Uh, um, but you know, the whale is a place where a lot of people will go. Hang right. Out, so that's that's know. something we don't get down here in San Diego as much. So I, you know, when when you go up to a show in L.A., you can see folks. There'll be people, oh yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, especially so. there. It's it's not only for music. It's like um, well, we were laughing last night with the bartenders because uh, a, a number of months ago, I almost got in a fight with Nicolas Cage. Really? <laughs> he, he was really drunk and started to pick up on a, a girlfriend of a friend of mine, and he stepped on my foot, and and we started like having words, and I didn't know who it was at the time, and and uh, <laughs> and then I then I looked up and I noticed Crispin Glover. You know Crispin Glover? That? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Wait a second, that's Crispin Glover, and he was looking at me like I'm sorry. He's he was. And then, and he kind of dragged Nicholas Cage out. And when Nicholas left, I realized, wait a second, that was Nicholas Cage. I almost got in a fight with Nicholas Cage. But anyway, that's that's the kind of place the whale is. It's like you know, it's L.A. So it's it's uh, which is funny to me because after being years in New York, I saw all kinds of musicians, but I rarely saw you know actors and stuff. Right, but the right. whale, you can you know, there's all kinds of people that come there. Uh, well, that uh, that tells you just how bad a night it is when Crispin Glover is your uh, sober sidekick, you know, the guy <laughs> exactly. who broke you exactly. in. Exactly. Holy cats. Was there anything else you wanted to ask about, like the show itself, or before we move on to other stuff? Well, obviously, I wasn't there. Uh, I, I'm really aware of not being in California because it's like 28 here. So <laughs> yeah, that's what, that's what I heard. Yeah, Joyce is like, he wants to interview you outside. What does that mean? Why would he want to do that? I was like, well, he's, he's not here, honey. It's okay. That's my wife. She was a little confused. Um, so were you? I wasn't clear. So it was just effects pedals. You weren't looping at that time. It was just kind of live. No, I w- we were looping stuff. I, I mean, looping okay. various, you know, I'll play something and, and loop it a little bit and then put it through different reverbs and, and, other and stuff. But it's nothing uh, with the computer. It's more like um, I would be using 
software synths or, um, you know, samples or something like that, which we weren't using at all. Everything that we were doing were, with pedals, but we do have, we definitely have looping pedals and stuff. So we're looping various things and, and, you know, um, not grooves because that's, we have a drummer, but, but, you know, sounds and, and we build on that and, and, um, it's kind of hard to explain, I guess, but, uh, I, it would be easier to show you visually. Like sometime maybe I can just record, show something, uh, you know, with a, a video of how that's done, you know. Cool. That, yeah, that makes sense. That's cool. Pat could throw that up on our, on our Facebook page or something if you're interested in that happening. Um, yeah, yeah that'd be cool. Um, uh, so I, I, just one last question, I guess, about that night, um, that I had was, you know, um, well, I guess you already answered this earlier, so I, I'd ask this asked and answered because uh, um, I guess I just wanted to say I that night was really good to me. I, as someone in the audience, I loved what you guys were doing, and I, I really like uh, I like music that kind of builds sonically and, and gets somewhere, but that also has like a huge amount of tension and release. And man, that just scratched all my itches that night. I was really happy. I just well, thought. You guys had a great night, as far as I was concerned. I I thought it was wonderful. Yeah, we we we've had, definitely had good gigs with that band. We've always liked it, you know. And and uh, but you know, it's you should come up another time when I do the other, the completely other thing too, because it's uh, I think it's really compelling. Also, that especially this young band, because we've been really um, playing a lot, and it's all this kind of involved music, but it also involve it, it's also uh, features still a lot of improvisation and I still use the pedals and stuff in the midst of all of it. But, um, but you know, there's a lot of harmony and stuff because there's acoustic piano and, and now right. there's two, two basses and, and, uh, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty strong. I, I think, you know, if you ever want to come up again, you know, um, just, you know, I can tell you when I'm going to do that. And it's, uh, it's, it's something I'd like people to see. It's a, it's also the thing that we just recorded in the studio, and I think we captured it pretty, pretty well. Yeah. I, I, I was going to mention, you had a pianist that night for a couple of the numbers. Is that someone? I didn't catch his name. Is he from New York, or is he? Oh, you just helped him move, you guys said. Oh, you that just was John, moved to L.A. Uh, okay, that was John Escreet. Um So wait a second, but this was the night before Thanksgiving? No, that wouldn't have been John. Um he just moved in January. Uh, it was. I actually have a picture I, I took of the. It was November twenty seventh. Huh. So maybe <laughs> he was visiting. Mm. Yeah. You know what? He was. You're right. He was visiting, and he he moved January first, around January first. But he was visiting and looking for apartments. That you you had mentioned that I think. Yeah. yeah that was I, John Escreed, who's a great pianist from England who lived in New York for a long time and done many records of some that I'm on and um, he plays with Antonio Sanchez, uh, which is a band I used to play with. Um, I actually got him in that band and uh, he, he decided to move out here too. He lives five minutes from me. You know, they ended up getting an apartment right down the street. So it's great. It's kind of great. Nice. Nice.
So um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about just, you know, your origins, you know, in the music. And I guess you're originally an East Coast guy. And, and, and can just tell us a little bit about, you know, your background um, and bring us up to speed a little bit on, you know, you and the music, uh, you know, where you started from and where you're at now. Well, actually, I'm originally a West Coast guy. I grew up ah. just north of... Um, well, you know, if, if you're from here or, or you live here, you know where Ventura is. I do know where Ventura is, yeah. That, that, that's that's the town I grew up in. So, mm. um, I But I left when I was 19, and I moved to New York, and I lived in New York for 36 years. So, um, essentially, I became a, a very East Coast person. Um, you know, New York... Uh, it's kind of a long story, but I, you know, I lived, I moved there in 81. So I, I lived, you know, through the eighties and nineties and, and all the way up until two and a half years ago. Um, when I got married and I, I couldn't, you know, have my little bachelor apartment anymore. I needed a bigger space and New York is being what it is. It's too expensive. So we, um, we decided to move out here, which is, you know, I'm from here and my sister lives down the street and we were coming out here to visit anyway. So, um, it just sort of, sort of happened. All all of getting married and moving out was a. There were decisions that happened within a two week period, and it just our lives completely changed. So it's kind of dramatic. But um, you know, New York also just is changing. It's in and it's not near the place it was. And I know I I saw that coming a number of years ago, and I saw L.A. coming up, and um, so you know, L.A. is really happening now for music and and. Uh, it was just the right time to come because I'm kind of leading this young scene here. It's all these young people who are not leaving. They used to leave like I did. Um, and then there's a lot of my friends who have moved here from New York, a lot of them, and there are more coming. So, um, the scene is great here and New York. I still go to a couple times, uh, well, every couple months or so. And I do some gigs and keep my hand in the scene, but it's not the same, but anyway, so, I grew up here. I studied music in, in the Valley and LA and, uh, when I was a teenager. And, um, as soon as I could move out, I did because I hated the scene here. Um, <laughs> and I, I loved California. I just didn't like the music scene. And so I left and, uh, and went to New York and by myself with very little money and didn't know anybody when in 81 when New York was a war zone, you know, um, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I moved out to New York and didn't, you know, like I said, I didn't know anybody and I, I just had to re, kind of relearn how to do everything. Just talk to people, just, you know, because everybody was so different there. I, I did everything from scratch and I worked day jobs for 10 years. I was a receptionist in a law firm for nine years and, and, and Oh, school. you're speaking Pat's language. Oh, yeah. Pat's a paralegal. Oh, wow. Okay. So I, I didn't, go that far because i didn't have the qualifications but i worked with plenty of them i and i did yeah i served papers and i you know i i was literally the uh the receptionist for actually a a pretty cool law firm because it was um ramsey clark who used to be um the attorney general under lyndon johnson so he was involved in a lot of crazy stuff and there was also like michio kaku was in there he had a little um i don't know if you know who he is he's like the scientist guy who's big now um he he had a little desk there, and then I used to give the mail to um, Frank Serpico. Did you ever see Serpico? Yeah. So I moved to I moved to uh, New York, and you know one of the reasons I moved to New York growing up in California, my father was from the Bronx, but I also 
you know, was very influenced by, especially the seventies, uh, movies and, and, uh, yeah, Serp, I love Serpico, you know, and all of a sudden I, you know, uh, this, the Ramsey's wife said, can you, uh, this guy's going to come in every once in a while and he's going to get his mail, just, you know, give it to him. And, and, and I said, okay. And I looked and I saw it's Frank Serpico. I said, is this D.D. Frank Serpico? At that time, he was, he was still, he was still in hiding for years. And he would literally come in like he was saying, kind of limping in a trench coat. And he'd just, you know, say hello and I'm, I'm Frank and I'd give him his mail and leave. And I, yeah, I couldn't believe it. I was just like, call my parents. It's like, I'm giving Frank Serpico his mail. And, um, yeah, it was an interesting, but anyway, I had jobs like that. I worked at the Songwriters Hall of Fame. So I worked for Sammy Khan and like a bunch of crazy songwriters at one Times Square, the building that they dropped the ball in. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a lot of like really, you know, kind of old school and hardcore New York things and, uh, got very, uh, you know, New York centric, I guess, for, for, at a certain point in my life. And, um, but you know, from there, I, I, I sort of, uh, just did everything. Just started meeting people and ma- making some records and then I started touring and, and all of that stuff. And, uh, you know, I made records and a lot of tours and, uh, you know, just started eventually all kinds of gigs, blues gigs, wedding gigs, all kinds of different stuff. Um, eventually could just do what I wanted to do and, um, and that's been it. And then, you know, and then, the move out here. I mean, that's the very, very abridged version. But right. can you can you can it. you tell us a little bit about you know your influences, who you look to in the music, and who 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 you know, and and also maybe who's who's kind of helped you along the way, you know, from those early stages where you had day jobs to, to you know to kind of being able to make it in the music alone. Well, it's funny, like you know, the influences are so wide. It's it's hard to say. I mean, I, I was. You know, growing up, I was always listening to, and I was very into like the fusion scene. Like I would go and see Weather Report and, and the Herbie Hancock. At, Mike's favorite band, doing. yeah, okay, uh, yeah, um, yeah. You know, and, and I was in Stanley Clark and all those bands, and so I was really into that. Um, you know, I went through all the phases of you know, bebop and and you know classical music and just everything. Now I just. I literally today was working on my classical record. My I have a electronic pop record where I'm just singing another thing with this band called Knower, where it's all, all songs. I have the new album that's just just a tradi- more of a traditional setup, but not traditional music. But you know, I'm just doing all kinds of different things. So my influences are really, really wide. I've always listened to everything. I'm a huge country music fan. Um, I. Brazilian music, you know, Milton Nascimento and all that stuff is very important for me. Um, so it's hard to say, but, uh, the people that helped me, it, it's been, it's, that's an interesting question because I'm really known now for helping young people and I, I'm really mentoring a lot of people, but I didn't get much of that myself. The only guy I could say who really kind of helped me out in that way was Dave Liebman. When I moved to New York, I, I, um, I studied with him when I was 19, he told me a couple things that I always tell in master classes that were really, um, funny and also really helpful. Like, uh, one of the things he said to me when the first time I went to him, and, and it's funny because now we have a saxophone quartet together and I see him a lot and we tour and everything, but, um, but, 
you know, I sat down in his loft, which was what, 6th Avenue and like 28th Street in the Flower District, and he paid $200 for this massive loft that sold for millions recently. And um, we, we were, he, he just asked me at one point, how old are you? And I said, 19. And he said, that's perfect. And I said, why is that perfect? He said, well, your life hasn't started yet. And I said, okay. And, he, and then he looked at me and he goes, uh, he said, um, it's all about perseverance, uh, New York. And I said, okay. And then he said, because people die. <laughs> and then he just left it like that. That was, and I didn't question that. And I just didn't really know what he meant at the time. But, you know, years later, I realized after being there and just, you know, if you do good work and you, you just, you're still there, you know, doing it. <laughs> your, your, your number just eventually comes up because people die. I mean, they literally die. They move away. They, their life starts. They get married and they get a different job and, you know, whatever. I stayed single for years. I, um, I didn't, so I didn't have a family. I, I just did, I just worked and I was just there all the whole time. And so he was right, you know, and I realized what that meant years later. And now, now I've, I've told him since and now I see him and we laugh, you know, but, um, it's, uh, it was important, but he, he helped me. He got me my first record deal. Um, he in France and, uh, he, he just sort of, you know, was a, a mentor to me in that way. And, and I would go into his house and he would talk about philosophical things, which were, which was the difference between New York and LA, um, at that time, especially was, uh, LA was technical. It was a, it was an industry town and, and every, I was being groomed to be a, a studio musician and I didn't want to do that. And when I moved to New York, everybody that I went to was talking about, philosophical things why we play music what it is to be a musician you know it was very little about the technical stuff and and i hadn't been exposed to that till i moved to new york and it was uh it was interesting and it was life-changing for me you know but um as far as other people helping me there weren't really um i can't really think of other people that were helping me i know i can think of um other friends people who are friends now that have been very generous like tim Byrne, um passing along all, any information i ever asked him for or even unsolicited you know uh venue information and festival information and you know and he's also a good friend of mine now but uh, even before i knew him very well he was very giving in that way um but a lot of people were very protective in new york uh it was um i i again i i don't I love it there and I loved my whole experience, but there weren't a lot of people helping me. I kind of feel like I had to do everything myself, you know? Okay. Were there, um, were there people, I guess then maybe another way of asking or trying to take a different bite of this apple or, you know, who are the people that, that you collaborated with 
um, in those 26 years, 36 years, um, that really, you know, had an effect, uh, on you or, you know, helped, helped you find your voice or, you know, were instrumental in you discovering, you know, who it is or how it is you wanted to play, what you wanted to communicate? Um, I would say, you know, most of the people that I, I chose to play with, um, you know, showed me something in some way. I, you know, I played a lot with, uh, the, the thing, I guess why I mentioned it in the sense that I didn't feel like I was being helped, like I was forced into being a leader at some point. I wanted to be a leader, but I was also forced into be a, a, being a leader because, you know, as a saxophone player, there was, especially after the, the band's touring things kind of dried up, you, you sort of had to be a, a leader. And, um, so I was hiring all the people that sort of made a difference uh, to me. Um, so I, I guess, you know, I played a lot and recorded a lot with Brian Blade and Craig Taborn and, um, Adam Rogers, Scott Colley, Donnie McCaslin, Chris Potter, uh, Mark Turner, um, a lot of those people and mainly because I hired them. We all are friends and it's a big circle of friends, but I think the way they played, and the way they play um, has always been an influence on me. I think we all influence each other in that way. But um, so I guess that's you know all of that was really important. All those those things. But um, you know, I, I, it's kind of just a big pot in my head of like you know the the blues gigs were influential for me, even though I, I didn't like them at the time. But um, everything the way anyone that was good at what they did i mean wedding bands i remember people <laughs> who did that as a as a you know all the time and just the way they handled it was an inspiration you know like wow this this is tough but they really make it fun you know certain people you know certain people was horrible but um you know it was i don't know all of that just influenced me in the sense of like who i wanted to be you know how i want to play what i want to present how i want to be as a person and as an artist, um, I talk a lot to students about this now. I mean, there's a difference, I think, between, especially nowadays, the way that young people come up with school and everything is, that's a whole other discussion, but it's, um, it can be rough for people to, to find it, what this is all about. And for me, I've always thought of it as being, I, myself as an artist, you know, that's what I do. I, I'm here to, make art for people and hopefully make them feel something you know that uh, and i think that's lost now with a, a lot of uh, most young people they they don't it's all instagram and and we have to learn all these songs for the professor at university and well, it's they're they're technically really proficient but they they lose the point sometimes so hmm. i think by being in New York, being around the generation of people I w was around and the older generation, um, sort of taught me a, a lot about what it is to be an artist. And, um, so now that I'm older, that's especially coming here, um, that's what I'm trying to bring to the younger crowd. And from what I hear, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm being successful at it, which is great to know, but it's important for me to do that because I think it's a, a big, um, void in that, uh, that area for, for young people at this point. But, um, yeah, I, I think so all to say all those experiences just kind of 
kind of go into this one thing of uh, big thing of experience. I can't really pinpoint one person or one or or certain incidents or anything really that that had that much of an influence. It was just a a, a big picture kind of thing, you know. Cool, Pat. Do you want to uh, ask something here? Because I'm going to turn to the newer stuff shortly. Well, sure. I was just, uh, you know, I looked over your career, and uh, we've listened to maybe half a dozen albums each. Just trying to kind of get ourselves up to speed a bit, but it's impressive. You've made a lot of leader dates. You know, it's like, yeah. Uh, and uh, so one thing I was noticing, it seemed like a, a couple patterns I saw was one that, you know, some of the more recent recordings. I've seen some more use of electronics, um, and you know, again, I, I actually voluntarily listen to Weather Report every now and then. Um, mm-hmm. So, but just thoughts about that, I guess. You know, how that works for you as a tool, and what you see as a, the strengths and limitations of, of, of using that. Well, uh, you know, I was always, when I first got into music, I was, it was at a time when synthesizers were just really becoming big. It was, it was the early Weather Report stuff, early Herbie Hancock stuff, all of that. Um, and I was always really attracted to that, even though, <coughs> excuse me, I played saxophone. Um, I was always really attracted to that and listening to it. So I was always, even then I had pedals I was using on the saxophone and stuff in the seventies. I didn't. I stopped using all that stuff for many, many years, but I was always really influenced by the, that stuff and always had synthesizer around the house and stuff um, and the apartment in New York. Um, as far as using it in my work, my very first record is actually kind of electric in that way. There are, there are electric things. After that, I, I made a, a whole long series of very acoustic records. Um, uh, in recent times, I've gone back to, uh, you know, using some electronics. Uh, the stuff that's the most electronic, well, my la- very last record was called Here and Now. And then, um, there's some stuff that's com- gonna come out, which is really not jazz. It's just electronic music that I, you know, where I'm singing and stuff. Um, that, that's a whole other thing. That's very, it's all just done in the computer and, and I love that. I absolutely love it. So I, I work in that medium all the time. But it's it's always been a huge part of of who I am. It's not a recent thing. In other words, it's it was it was one of the reasons I started playing music. You know, I loved synthesizers and electronic stuff, and I came up in that era of of fusion. You know, first, and then I really got into jazz. You know, more straight ahead jazz. Yeah, that's because you know we're slightly younger than you are, five or so years, and of course we came up with the trauma, the orthodoxy of the, of the neoconservative movement, and this, 
you know, right. Marcellus led reaction against it. I've never been comfortable with that, but it did seem like there's a period where it just was not acceptable or allowed for jazz musicians to use electronics or right. if it ever happened, there's this big commentary about it and, oh, they're breaking rules, you know. Um, right. So it was kind of cool to see that you were moving comfortably between those worlds. And you mentioned a couple yeah. times you're going to do a project that you're singing on. And I noticed now I, uh, you know, that was one of the albums that you just mentioned, your most recent album we listened to. There's a couple that had some vocals on them. Mostly it was wordless, but there were a couple with, uh, you know, actual lyrics and then mm-hmm. at least one that had some vocoder action going on there. Right. Um, so is, is that something that you've been thinking about for a while in terms of moving into that lyrical space? Cause I always feel that like that's fraught, right? It's, it's a whole different kind of set of muscles almost to do that kind of stuff. It is. Uh, I've been doing it for a long time and have a lot of material that I can release. So it's, it is coming, um, probably at some point this year, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, like I said, it's been part of what I do for quite a while. Um, and I just haven't really presented it that, that much other than in recent times on, like on here and now and a little bit on a couple other albums I sang a little bit on, on things and used a little electronics. But, um, yeah, you know, uh, getting back to that whole thing too with, you know, the whole, conservative you know movement in the jazz thing in the 80s i mean um you know that was a a a really weird really weird time i I think it wasn't it's it's often thought of as being musician-led i think um i think it was business-led i think it was i really think it was verve and blue note and and all of those companies that really saw money in selling a certain image and um and the musicians seeing money just sort of went just bought it basically and um and you know wore the suits and and played the game and and really you know made careers for themselves very moneyed careers some of them um but i think that was really brought on by the the industry and by the labels um wanting to sell records at the time and you know i had some interaction because i was doing doing this gig at the 55 bar with my band and and i you know i had both blue note and verve come down a couple of different times where they took tables and sat there in their suits and then came up to me uh i remember the verve people in particular coming up to me after the gig once and said you know you're our favorite guy um we wish we could sign you and I said, well, why can't you? And the one guy just looked at me and said, you don't fit the, the mold, basically. And he just basically kind of winked and like, we're sorry, he said. <laughs> yeah. But this is the, this is the best, the best music that we hear, but they couldn't do it. And I, you know, I realized, I, you know, I, I'm in there, I'm like wearing jeans and, you know, I, I don't know much baseball cap or whatever and i'm just i'm just playing the music you know what i mean i'm not playing the game at all and it's it's, it's still it's 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 really heavily like that now with the, the visual things and instagram and everybody you know doing that um so it's it's all messed up it's it's and it's it's still really messed up i, I think i just at a certain point went you know i'm just gonna do this the way i want to do it and be true to myself and put it out there and whoever gets it gets it i 
I sort of realized being the darling of the underground was not such a bad thing. And I also realized that, um, the long run and the, is, is, was more important to me than the immediate thing. So I think I get the sense that my records will be listened to long after I'm gone. And, um, and they're, they've been influential beyond what any press or anything has admitted to. And I could point to <laughs> many examples of that. Um, but, you know, the business has been pretty unkind to me in that way, but the, the, um, the business people and the press and everything, but the, but the fans and everything have been really supportive and certain and a lot of musicians who know. Um, and I just kind of had to decide to go with that. And, you know, that all started and it was very frustrating in that period in the eighties when that all started. But I, I really think, you know, they all eventually you know, fell by the wayside because it, of course it was the wrong thing to do. They, they lost everything, you know, Verve and all those labels just tanked, you know? Um, and I could see that coming too. They were supporting music that wasn't going to last for the most part, you know? Um, anyway. would you, yeah. Would you say that, uh, you said that things are still pretty messed up. I'm wondering if, if you feel, I mean, I'm assuming that, uh, and you can and you can tell us this in a second. Um, I'm assuming you're releasing some of this uh, plethora of music you're describing on on your own labels or labels that you control. Or um, we live in a time now where it's a little bit easier, I think, for jazz musicians to control the means of distribution more than it was in the past. Do you see any kind of hopefulness in, in that situation? Is that a positive that you see uh, in the current scene? Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately I'm, I'm very positive. I always ha have been. I think we can, we can release whatever we want whenever we want and instantly now, you know, in this day right. and age. The problem is there's a, there's such a glut of horrible stuff out there to, 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 to weed through to try to get to anything that's decent that it's really, you know, and, and people's attention spans are short. It's really hard to, to get noticed even if it is good. But yeah, but I think if you have, if you put something out on Bandcamp on your own and then spend the money to get a good PR person, um, you can, you can do okay. You can get, uh, attention for it and I end up making like, I didn't do anything for that here and now record. I just put it out on Bandcamp. I didn't get a PR person. I didn't make CDs. I just put it out. Probably a lot less people have it than some of my other records, but I hear about it all the time, and I ended up, not that I made much money from it at all, but I ended up making more money than I did from any other record that I ever put out. Hmm. Um, so it was just because it was, I got everything. Everything that was sold on Bandcamp just came directly to me and to my account, which is, that's fantastic, you know. And that, you know, it helps that I already have a reputation. 
and had a, a, a history of making a lot of records. So it's harder for young people to do that. But, you know, I have a lot of friends who, you know, they cross over into different genres. My friend Lewis Cole, who I was just talking to just before we got on this call, um, and I played with last night, he's got Noah and his, and his own, his own projects, and he's, you know, gotten, just by putting stuff out for free, basically, um, has gotten very well known, and is now, yeah, tours all over the world and does all kinds of different things, and, you know, is on, excuse me, has a really good label now, uh, Brain Feeder, uh, which is a LA label, and, oh, um, yeah. and, uh, you know, he, he's doing well, but he, he just was, he's just been relentless. I mean, he just embraced the, the current thing of putting stuff on YouTube and, and putting stuff out on Bandcamp and all that stuff. And, and, uh, it's worked for him. So it, it, if the music is good and you get it out enough, I think PR really is a, is a huge, huge, uh, plus and that's really expensive so it's hard for a lot of people to afford that it's definitely hard for me to afford it um but it's kind of a necessity if you really want to get stuff out there and if you get with the right person i think combined with a good product you know i think you can do something you know you just have to be consistent with it yeah dave liebman's daughter is in that field isn't she (laughs) we've gotten promotional stuff from lydia liebman Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I I didn't know that that's what she was doing, but that it doesn't surprise me. Yeah, we're <laughs> we're trying to do our bit. We we weed through a lot of stuff and try and interview folks and promote stuff that we you know we don't get anything out of this, but we try and you know make known when we run across new stuff that we really dig. Yeah, you know, no, this is great. I mean, maybe I give some really people do. some attention. So yeah, you know, that's it's the goal. Fantastic. Anyway. Can you tell us about your new stuff then? I mean, it sounds like you're really proud of this work, so tell us more about it. Well, it's, yeah, it's, um, it's sort of, uh, you know, being, moving here has gotten, there's a lot of aspects that I didn't see coming, but, um, one of the things is that I actually have space to have, uh, you know, a studio, one of the rooms in our apartment. I built my home studio and I have drums in there and other instruments. And, and so what, and, and then I hooked up with all these young musicians here that mostly actually my whole band went to USC. One of the, the piano players, Vince Mendoza's son. Do you know Vince Mendoza? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Luca Mendoza, he's 21. I, the, 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 one of the bass players just turned 19. The others, uh, the oldest guy in the band is 23. Um, but they're incredible. And we've been working on this music for a couple of years now. And um, it's just gotten to this level that's really the best thing that I've done. Um, and so having time out here and then a space to play and people willing to rehearse, you know, New York was hard in that way, um, especially people my age all had families and stuff. And so, you know, they'll come over and anytime and we'll run music and i can write really complicated music and and stuff that i couldn't really do in new york uh stuff that i re- you know I, I really wanted to present but i we i just didn't have the the time to rehearse it and the time to get it together and really present it that way so i didn't compose in that way so i coming out here it just allowed me to do all this stuff that i've been hearing and um we've rehearsed it and, it and it's gotten it to a certain level and so recently i just thought you know i really need to take this into the studio 
which is another thing that's great about here is the studio price. It's like, you know, three or four times as cheap uh, as New York. Huh, and I went okay. to a, a nice studio here in, in East LA in Boyle Heights. And, um, and it's, it, it, yeah, it came out great. It really, it's intense. It's a kind of an intense record, but it, it um, and the, the compositions are long. It's, it's almost like some of it's almost classical in a certain way. Um, but combined with, uh, you know, a lot of improvisation and, uh, it, it's unique, I think. And, and it really came, came out great. So I'm just finishing that now as far as like mixing it and everything. I'm just starting to mix it. Uh, hopefully I'll release it in the next couple of months, but, um, I'm really excited about it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great. I'm excited about all the things I'm doing in different, they're completely different. You'll see. When they come out, if you follow um, what I'm doing, you'll see that there's a few. There's going to be a few things this year that are com- really, really far from each other. Like literally, through composed string orchestra, piano, saxophone music with no improvisation. It's classical music, 17, 18 minute pieces through composed, uh, complete electronic vocal records that are, you know, with all lyric driven and everything and then this stuff that's um that i just recorded that's very improvisational i also did, just did a duo record in new york with the, the great drummer kenny wallace and plays with like bill frizzell and sex mob and that we just did a record that we're gonna we're working on too so there's a lot of stuff coming and it's wide very different but um i'm excited about it all could you just go ahead and tell us the names of the of the young guys in your band let's 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 give them a little love yeah, well, Luca Mendoza on piano is a, a great, um, great pianist and, and composer, really great composer. What we do one of his, his, his songs on the new record too. And, uh, he's also involved in electronic music and he's in the, he's in the classical, um, composition program at USC at the moment, as is one of the bass players. I have two bass players in the band, Ethan Moffat, who's the 19 year old and he's, He's unbelievable. Um, and he's also in the classical composition department at USC, but they're all really, really well versed in jazz and went through the whole jazz thing too. And, um, is there another you know, like, Moffat bass player? Is he related to Charnet? Yeah. Probably. The Charnet Moffat. Yeah. They're definitely not related, but, okay. um, <laughs> well, but, uh, but you know, uh, it's funny that, but Ethan's, uh, father is a bass player or was um like in the 80s 90s here he's still a bass player but he, he was working a lot his name is lloyd moffat he used to play with i don't know if you remember grant geisman who was the guitar player for chuck mangione do you remember that guy he had a couple of hits back in the 80s 90s but, i remember chuck um, very anyway, well <laughs> yeah well he played uh lloyd played in that so he yeah so he's in, father is a bass player but it's not the one that you think um, but anyway, Ethan's great. Uh, then Logan Kane is the other bass player. Um, also a, a great young bass player who graduated from USC and, and, uh, does various things around town. And, um, and then the drummer is Benjamin Ring, who also graduated from USC and, um, he is now just entering the Hancock Institute. They chose him as the drummer for the next two years. In, in that, which what you was the Monk Institute, now it's the Hancock Institute. Um, and so he's an, he's an amazing drummer. 
is absolutely incredible. And uh, so, yeah, all great young musicians that uh, are going to do a lot, you know. So how do you? Can I? This is just a dumb audience member question. How do you? How does one? How does? How does someone of your stature? kind of bump into these young people you just go stand out in usc with your saxophone and say looking for you know i mean how's it work well um i let's see i did i started when i first moved here i started these gallery shows doing these different gallery shows uh i I guess i did a few gigs at at the whale and then some young people would just come up to me and you know start talking to me and um and i'd ask about them and then you know with the internet and stuff, if I go home and check out what people are doing, I can hear them pretty instantly. And I thought, wow, these, these kids are good, you know? And then, um, then I remember doing this one gallery show that actually Nick Reinhardt and Eric Gardner, I got them on that. They were doing a duo at the time. And also Chris Potter played too. And Justin Brown, who moved out here too, a uh, great drummer. Um, and we were doing this gallery show that I put on and, and one kid uh, at the end came up and started talking to me because I did a solo set with sampler and stuff and I had all these modern classical samples in the in the sampler and he came up to me and um he started talking to me and and was you know very you know uh, educated about you know what I was sampling he he was was that you know this William Schumann and was that what sample was that you know was that Feldman and all this stuff and I was like who is this kid who's asking me about all this really <laughs> hip shit? You know, and I was like, uh, so I, you know, I, he left, and then Logan, the bass player, who eventually both of them are in my band now, came up to me. I said, who is that kid who came up to me and asked me about all this stuff? He said, oh, that's uh, Luca Mendoza, that's Vince's son. And I went, oh, okay, that makes sense, you know, because Vince has always been one of my favorite composers and and uh, and arrangers. Uh, I was, I thought, well, okay, that makes sense that he would know. Uh, about that stuff but anyway uh logan also said he's a really good oh logan hired me to play on his gig and then i really liked it so i got him in my band and then he said you know luca is a really great pianist you should check him out so i checked him out really great and it just kind of went from there and then vince also calls me to sub for him at usc so i would go to usc and have these very same people in my classes in my ensembles and I realized, wow, they're really good. The, 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 like I said, technically what they need is some knowledge about just choice <laughs> aesthetics, like what, what to do when, you know, when to play loud, soft, not play, play high, low, like all those kind of things that are really deep improvisational things that aren't really taught in the schools because the, the schools are, they teach technique. They don't teach all those things that I was talking about that I got when I moved to New York from the old school guys like Liebman um, about what it is to play music. So I, f- I felt like I these guys together 
and start talking to them about that stuff because they're wide open. They really want to know. Then it's going to be great. And sure enough, I did that and they picked up on it right away. And now I don't have to say anything. You know, I did that in New York too with some younger guys like Dan Weiss, who was in my band when he was like 20, and Thomas Morgan, who started in my band, and um, Jacob Sachs and some other people. Um, and so I had experience with it, but um, yeah, these kids out here, they just, they picked it up. And so now I don't have to say anything. And, and they have a lot of stuff together that uh, I certainly didn't at that age. And um, so it's kind of, you know, they push me too, you know, because they're, they're technically so good. <clears throat> you know, they can get really hard music together really fast and everything it, that it's inspiring for me too. So it kind of works both ways, but um, that's how it happened. And then through that, you know, once you get a bunch of young people in your band, then a bunch of other young people want to be in your band and they all start showing up. And all of a sudden, you know, all the young people in the, in the city, basically. And, and um, I've just always been tied into that. And it's interesting because a lot of other people, especially my age, don't, they don't know about the young crowd. But I kind of feel like, Look at the history of the jazz thing. I mean, the people I always admired, they always got the best young people. Look at Miles, right? I mean, that's what I was going to say. It sounds like you're kind of, you're doing a little Art Blakey, you know, uh, Miles Davis right. finishing school, you know? Right. It is that. It's the modern version of that. And, and there's very few people doing it now. And the young people tell me that. They, they all literally come up to me and go, thank you, because nobody else is doing this. And, um, you know, it's funny because, you know, the history of jazz, that was always happening. That was how, that's how everybody came up. You know, I mean, they, they were in the school of whatever band they were in. And that's Blakey and, and Miles. And, you know, I mean, think about it. I mean, Tony was 17 when he started playing with, with, um, with Miles, you know, and, right. and there's that famous story where like somebody came, you know, he was playing, he was playing too much <clears throat> and somebody came up to, Miles after the set and said, uh, you know, the drummer, tell the drummer to, to play, he's playing too much or play softer or something. And Miles just looked at, at the guy and said, tell, you know, uh, leave the drummer alone, <laughs> which was, you know, basically like, I know, but I'm not going to say anything because he's so good. He'll figure it out. And that, and that was a, when I heard that story, I kind of like, wow, that I really, I can identify with that because, um, you know, you kind of, you give some direction. And I did this, I remember with Dan Weiss when he got into my band and he, he played very soft. And, and, uh, I don't know if you know Dan's playing now, but I, I saw him about four months ago, uh, in San Diego with, uh, Rujesh Mahantapa. So yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's really one of the great drummers, one of the most influential drummers. Any drummer will tell you that. Um, he's, he, he's just beyond, he's, he's such a great musician and he's, he's such a good technician and he, he knows the music but gets the art form and everything. He's just a really deep guy. But I, he's basically started in, in my band and played, he still plays with me. It's been 20 some odd years later. Um, and, uh, but I remember thinking, you know, I, I just told him like, you know, maybe play louder in my band and he did and his hands used to bleed. But, um, wow. but it was, but, and then, but he liked it. And then for a couple of years, he played way too loud and it really was kind of bugging me, but I thought, you know what? He'll figure it out. And he did. 
And then all of a sudden it was, you know, he, 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 he played perfectly and, and amazingly and was, you know, I got a lot, I got a lot from Dan, even, you know, as a younger musician, but I have to say I learned a lot from him, um, about rhythm, rhythm and just how to improvise in a certain way. You know, it was hard. He's, you know, playing with him is hard and in the best of ways, you know, because, um, it was, He's not really making it easy, but it, it's um, it, it, unless you're really you get really good, then it becomes really easy. So I wasn't good enough to to have it be easy at a certain point. I realized, and then I did get good enough, and and then it became a really mutual sort of thing improvisationally. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's that's sort of that relationship. But you know, it with these young guys. I kind of do that. I tell them things. I tell them like, yeah, maybe you shouldn't have done that or check this out, whatever. And they really listen and, and, uh, and they figure it out. And it's just grown and grown. And it's now it's what I, I hear in the music, you know, and I think that's the way it is in the history of the jazz. It's the way it's been. What do you, what do you, what do you get from them? I assume it's a sort of symbiotic relationship. So what are they giving you that, you you probably could get in other places, but you know what is it specifically that they they give to your music and to your own development? Well, you know they the, like I said, technically they're really good at at, at things that are that um, you know every generation gets better technically, and I think that I can't really pinpoint how that pushes me, but it it does. It really makes it a. a it it really makes a uh, some kind of special thing where where uh, people of my generation are technically more came up the same way I did. Um, where these kids are at a really higher level at a at a younger age, so somehow that pushes you as a as a an older musician. It's like wow, I really need to be, I need to keep up. You know, like I need to keep up with this level of of proficiency on the instrument, and you know, uh, and th- and that's so it's a lot of technical stuff, you know. Um, but it it does it pushes me, and 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 I love that, you know. I, it's, I I really love that. So I think yeah, it goes both ways. Yeah. Do you ever have moments? I know uh, I'm a college teacher, and. Uh, Oftentimes in discussions, uh, I, I love the energy and the infectiousness of my students. And, and sometimes they get so excited about things that I'm no longer excited by. And I have to stop myself from saying something because it's good that they're excited by it. You know, like, you know, some, some kid will say, Hey, have you ever read, you know, Communist Manifesto? This is amazing. Right. And, I'll be, and, I'll, you know, and I'll be like, Yes, it is. And I'll just, you know, it's like, I, I, I'm like, I want to suggest seven more, eight other things you should read after that, but I'll just bite my tongue and go, okay, that's, you have those moments where you're like, they're so enthusiastic and you're like, okay, let's just, you know, sure. let it go. Oh yeah, of course. You know, I, I, and that's part of the, the reason I like being around them because, um, that enthusiasm is infectious and when you when you care so much about your music and you want people to be that enthusiastic about it when you you're playing with people that are a little bit more jaded um you know or have been been around the block a little bit um you know you don't get that enthusiasm because you know we've seen these things over these patterns or these things we've had that experience and you know that's 
that's okay, but it's nice to have people that are that excited to be playing your music and to be um, just playing music at all. You know, just like I'm down to do whatever, you know, let's play there. Let's play. Oh, the money's not good. Fine. You know, whatever it is, um, that makes it easy. Um, but yeah, there are, are moments, especially on the road with other things outside of music sometimes, which is fun or funny to me. Their excitement about certain things that I forget how young they are, to be honest with you, because musically it's so developed that when we go to a restaurant or when something happens and they're excited about certain things that I'm like, whoa, this, <laughs> they're really young. You know, it's like these are kids. And that, so sometimes that's funny to me. And sometimes I, yeah, that's when I, I don't say anything because I'll just seem like the, I'll really seem like the old guy at that point if I start talking. <laughs> You know, but, you know, or just traveling or you know, like, wow, look at this on this plane or whatever it is. It's like, wow, really? Like, I, you know, I don't know. It's that kind of thing. But, um, yeah, anyway, I, I love the energy of it, though. There, I love the enthusiasm. Pat, do you have uh, other questions about the, the new music or other things about we, what we've been talking about? I think we've covered most of it. I mean, I'm fascinated by this idea of two bases. It's just kind of hard to pull that off. Well, you know, I, I've used two drums a lot, <clears throat> even on some of the records maybe you've heard, um, the Grey Lamb Epicenter and Anacapa mm -hmm. and other ones. Uh, I've used two drums a lot, and, I've, and, and then recently, you know, I've been using, you know, this band with this music, and I um, was, was quartet, I was using two different basses, because one, also Logan... One of the, Logan Kane, one of the bassists plays in this band called Thumpasaurus, which is more like a, a pop rock band, and they tour a lot. So they were on the road a lot. So Ethan was doing the gigs, and Ethan does an equally good job. They're they're both amazing. Um, and then I realized that there was one gig where they were both in town, and I I uh, I thought, let me just ask them both to play. Let's see what happens. And that was just recently, only a couple months ago, and. Um, it was fantastic. It was just, it's great to hear the lines. Cause I have these, if you hear the music, you'll see that there's all these written lines and, and, the, and they have the technique to play them together and to play them in tune on acoustic basses. And also Logan plays, they both play electric, but Logan really plays electric too. So he doesn't on the record, but he does live a lot. Um, so, you know, and, and then Ethan with all his classical stuff is really good at the bow also. So oh, there's okay. also that color. Um, and, you know, just having that, the, yeah, I, I, it surprised me how great it was. I've, I've done gigs with two bass players before in, in New York and stuff. Again, some of those gigs, I, Thomas Morgan and Tim Lefebvre. Um, but this is the first time I had it actually in the band and, and, um, it's, it's been great. It's really, I really like it. So we're, we're going, you know, we're going to try to do, I know we're doing the Detroit Festival in September, which is a really good festival. Um, and I'm bringing both of them, you know, just biting the bullet for the airfares and whatever, and just bringing the whole, the whole crew, crew. because I think it's also interesting for the audience just to see two bass players, as, uh, as, especially two acoustic bass players, is unusual, you know. Um, but it's great. It sounds, it sounds amazing. Yeah, it's an engineering challenge, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've, yeah. Only, I've only seen it once here in San Diego at a, 
a gig where there were two old timers. Uh, I shouldn't say that there were two older gentlemen. Uh, I forget the name of the gig, but uh, it was a bunch of different people playing a tribute to something or other. And anyway, they did uh, softly in a morning sunrise and it was, it was the highlight of the evening. Those two guys, right. mm-hmm. it was just amazing. These two, you know, just master technicians playing that mm-hmm. song together. It was like, wow, I need yeah, to do yeah. this more often, you know, it was yeah. Really cool. yeah. Yeah, it could be great. Um, could you, uh, maybe, you know, tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, just for people who want to follow you and people who want to keep up with your, you know, varied recording career, what, what are the, what are the, what are the websites? What are the, the contacts that they need to kind of dig into your music? Because people listen to our you know podcast and they want to, you know, there's some people who are kind of completists and if we talk about it, they want it. So where do they go? Well, I mean, I have a website, davidbinney.com. Um, I don't put that much stuff on it, but I do keep the, the dates, uh, the, the gig schedule up to date. Um, although I don't think I put March up there yet, but I will. Um, but I, I keep that up to date so people can follow that. As far as, you know, the other stuff, I mean, you know, Instagram is, you know, that's, it's part of the whole thing now. I mean, so I'm always on that and Facebook still. I don't know how much longer that's lasting, but definitely Instagram is, is, uh, important. So I'm always posting stuff on that. And, you know, it's all, it's, it's good to have followers on Instagram too, just because even these PR people, they look at it like, you know, how many followers you have and they base things on, you know, that a lot of things are based on that now, believe it or not. Um, so it's good that, you know, if people are fans or are interested that they just, you know, follow, follow me. That would, be great and i'm always posting stuff about gigs and new records and then sometimes just funny stuff or just you know stuff to you know before the gig or talking to friends of mine that they they'll know and you know whatever it's you know i I put that up there too so but yeah instagram is really important at the moment you know at least where do they go to uh get your records i mean we we uh scared up a bunch of them but um where would they go if they want to find david binney recordings well, the actual physical copies, I'm not sure where that exists anymore, to be honest with you. I don't. I think I have one of each of my records, other than maybe a couple of the more recent ones, like the Time versus Nanocap. I have a couple of copies, and here and now I have LPs of. Um, but yeah, uh, with the LPs, you can get of here and now, you can get um, through, uh, there's a label called Ghost Note, um, and I, it's just Ghost Note Records. I'm not sure if it's ghostnotrecords.com to be honest with you, but you can find that on, on Bandcamp or through my Bandcamp. Um, as far as the other CDs, I think you probably just have to find them in like Amazon. There's an Italian site that my friend owns called jazzos.it that has a lot of stuff. Um, other than that, it's all, you know, downloads and streaming at this point. So, um, I don't really know where people get stuff. I, I didn't even make CDs of my last record, you know? Right. I, I, I can't remember. Um, I mean, this, uh, you know, to plug CDs temporarily, I can't, you know, if, if it hadn't been, when I was looking for what show to go to in LA, I was like, who do I know? Like what, I, I want to hear something I, I know. And uh, I had one hard copy of one of your CDs. I think it was your first CD, The Luxury of Guessing. Uh, and, second uh, CD. Second CD, excuse me, yeah. that's right, second. And I don't know where I got that, and I can't mm-hmm. remember 
I mean, I, I hadn't heard of you when I got it. Um, so I don't even, I don't know how it came into my possession. I like Patrick, I, you know, haunt, uh, used music venues and, and, and I, I pick up stuff at the library when they foolishly put things out that they shouldn't. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know where it came into my possession, but because it did, uh, that's why I went to your show and man, am I glad I did. I, I just really oh, wow. like, like that group a lot. Um, so well, that's great. I mean, I still, that's, that record is from like 93 or something. So I guess it's, it's still working for me. Yeah, uh, it is. But yeah, it's, uh, yeah, Audio Quest. It's funny. I just, I hadn't talked to the guy. Who, who produced those, um, I mean, he, he executive produced, I guess I've produced musically all my CDs, but, um, but he worked for AudioQuest and still does. And I, I just realized that I needed to get a number that he has. And I haven't talked to him in years. And I just contacted him again right before I got on this phone call. I emailed him to get this, uh, mastering guy who mastered that record, Bernie Grundman, who's probably the most famous mastering guy in the world, but I know that he's still here in LA doing it. And I was thinking that maybe he could master this classical stuff for me. So I actually just contacted the guy who was responsible for getting me that on that label, Audio Quest, which is yeah, Luxury of Guessing. And I did another one called Tree to Dream, which came out on my, ultimately on my own label, but it was recorded initially for Audio Quest. Cool. Um, Pat, can you think of any other questions we should ask David? Well, just uh, in a earlier work that you'd recommend to listeners just as a kind of an introduction to you if they haven't heard any of yours not necessarily your favorite or even your best but just one that you think would give them a kind of good introduction well i think an album that kind of is one of my favorites obviously i I think i would point to one of my favorites but um that also kind of encompasses a lot of things i did it's kind of a large ensemble thing it's very acoustic for the most part is a sort of recent one in the last i don't know eight years or something it's called grayland epicenter If you guys that that record is one of my favorites and and i i think it kind of takes can kind of continues a lot of stuff that i started with records like luxury of guessing and free to dream and then it kind of is leading towards uh even stuff that i'm doing now so I, it's kind of an important record for me and i think a it's a good place to start. I feel really good about the way I played on it. It's really interesting. It's got a, a plethora of stars on it, from Chris Potter to Brian Blade to Weiss to Craig Taborn to, you know, just uh, Gretchen Parlato and, you know, uh, on and on, uh, Ambrose Akinlusery. So, um, yeah, Wayne Krantz, you know, so it's, it's, I think it's an interesting record for people to start with. Great. And what's the name of the, the newest project coming out? Or is it, um, it might have not might not have a name yet. So it but. doesn't have a name. Okay. It doesn't have a name yet. TBA. But, um, okay. Yeah, I don't know what I'll call the record. I we've 
we've done gigs with this project under the name the Angelino Band because it's just a, a bunch of people from Los Angeles. But um, I don't. There'll probably be a song called Angelino on it, but I the record I'm not sure what it's going to be called, but I do have to figure it out pretty soon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> are you, are you going to come up with a clever name for for this group? I mean, the Jazz Messengers is already taken, so. Well, I don't know. I you know, at, at, at one yeah, one time I had the I live in the, the part of L.A. called Alhambra, and it was just calling that band the Alhambra Project. My, my booking agent was like, "No, don't call it that." I'll get it confused with Spain. So that's when he said, call it the Angelino Quartet. And so we, I said, I don't know about that. You know, that's maybe the people in New York won't like that. You know, East Coast, it's, it's kind of, you know, Los Angeles based. And, and, but he said, no, trust me, they'll, they'll be fine. So we did an East Coast tour with that under that name. We played at Blues Alley and we played at Dizzy's and we played at, uh, one of the places in Boston and Montreal and, and people came out. I mean, it was like, it was packed. Dizzy's was packed. And, and it was these young guys that they didn't know. Um, so I guess it does work. So it might still be called that, the Angelino Quintet at this point. Um, but I, I don't know. Um, I really don't know yet. For okay. Sure. Um, is there anything you want to ask us or uh, anything you, you know, that, you know, you want to talk about that we, we probably didn't spend enough time covering? Well, um, no, I mean, as you can see, I can talk, (laughs) I can go, but, um, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that I could talk about. Uh, it would be too long now and, and I don't even know if my phone is going to last that long, but, um, you know, I, there's a lot of stuff with the way the jazz thing is now with, um, with the education system and the universities that is, um, I think sort of needs to be talked about more than it is it's just um just the way people are taught and the way you know um the way students end up idolizing students and it, it the the business i mean all this stuff is about money but uh you know the education system is is about that and it's kind of hurt the scene i think it's hurt the music in the long run uh the whole the way it's i don't think obviously education is not the the problem it's the way people have um been taught and the way the universities sort of took the education thing and and made it more about getting people to to go to school and pay the tuitions than about what they're actually learning and i think that when i go into these schools sometimes and talk to the kids about certain things they're they're really it's refreshing for them they're they're like wow uh we don't hear this and we need to which is basically again i talk about you know what music is and why we play it and what it is to have a musical career and um i don't spend as much time talking about the technical stuff although i do sometimes when i really feel like they need it Uh, i talk about all these other things but uh, you know it's it's been hijacked by business and so the 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 jazz education industry has become this huge business in itself and is very protective and very um separate from what the music actually is and it's uh i think that that's a real problem now um so i i feel like i'm deprogramming kids all the time that's really <laughs> what i serious that's what i'm doing like a lot of the cults and they there's know. a 
they know there's a fair they... amount of this i mean I, I i just taught a class on this recently and there's a there's a strong argument or at least an argument that needs to be engaged with uh about the idea that a lot of you know college education and in, in the case you're talking about musical education is really not teaching you know what necessarily people are going to use but it's it's a form of credentialing it's a form of signaling you yeah. know um, and i imagine that's true for a lot of music programs if as you say these kids are so technically accomplished at this point why are they still there because right. they get a credential right and they're good enough as your band is already showing they're good enough to make a living at this now right yeah oh of course yeah they are and th- that's that's true people are trying to get credentials but then you, you at a certain point you have to to say for what? I mean, if there's right. no ind- industry that's being fed, I mean, where are these people going to go? You, there's, you can only create so many teachers. And right. I mean, who are they going to teach when there's no industry to go into anyway? And that's, that's happening. That's already happening. The industry is dying. It's dead. Like, it, you know, the touring thing, the whole thing in Europe is dried up. The whole, it, it's, there, there are a lot of other ways to, to make uh, a living in music now, but you have to, this is what I'm saying about the being self-sufficient in a way and, and sort of doing the internet thing and, and creating a fan base on your own and being actually being a real artist. You have a chance to make a living if you're really good at something and you have you can build, build a fan base that's loyal to you and will pay money for what you make. But as far as going out and touring and doing, I mean... This stuff is done. That's done. I mean, you know, on a, a lot of levels. So, um, so a lot of the young musicians get out of school now and they go into, you know, different pop things and they're well versed in that too. Some of them, at least out here, not New York is very, they're really unprepared. I think here they can kind of do everything and they, they do a lot of pop tours and stuff so they can make money doing that. But, you know, I think that, the jazz programs are not preparing them for that at all. Not telling them that they're just taking the money and then putting them out there, and they and they have no idea what to do. And they come to people like me. They take lessons, like because they hear stuff like this, a, a podcast or whatever, because they're listening to these things. And and they're like, we heard you talk about this, and it was like, wow, it's the first time we heard anyone talk about this. And so what? How do we do it? Like, what can we do? You know? And and so I'm constantly dealing with that with people like well what are, they're confused they get out they don't know they have no idea what to do i never felt like that i didn't go to school i, I graduated high school and moved and, and studied with a favorite you know saxophone players at the time which was the best education and probably what i would tell students to do anyway is just you know spend one one thousandth of the money you would spend in college and just go to your favorite players and study you'll get way more information you know um that you're going to get in that jazz program for the most part um and not that's not to say that all jazz programs are bad there are some that are good i mean i i, I like teaching at usc i like cal arts and, um you know but some of them are a lot of them were just taking the money and a lot of the teachers you know they couldn't make it in the business so they kind of have chips on their shoulders and they teach them one way and you know it's it's very educational and it's in this little world and they all have, you know, jobs and they're all going for tenure and they, they, they're not connect. They have no idea what's actually happening in the mu- in music. And that's, that's a problem because the kids get out and they don't know what to do and they they get depressed and 
you know, and I deal with that because, you know, and, and people like myself, because if we're older musicians mentoring them or, or talking to them, they're asking us, you know, what's, what are we doing? Like, what's, what's the answer? And, you know, I don't necessarily have the answer. I can just say, you know, it's not about that. It's about this other thing. It's about wanting to be an artist and being able to, to put up with what you have to put up with to, to be an artist. It's not easy. It's really hard. You know, people get degrees and they, they get out of school and they expect to, because they have the degree that they're going to make money. I mean, that doesn't, that's not how art, <laughs> the arts work. You know, that might work with, you know, being a doctor or a lawyer or something, but it, it doesn't work that way in, a, in an arts profession. You know, it's just it's not how it works. So, you know, but that's what they're being told. You know, you get this degree, you'll be fine. Well, that's that's not the case. So, you know, that's one of the things that I, I talk about a lot, and I guess I feel like I that we all should be talking about. Um, but, um, yeah, other than that, I don't know. I talked a lot, so I, I, I think we covered a lot. As far as you guys go, I... I don't know your your it's a podcast, right? Is that what? Yeah, it is? yeah. I don't know it. I'm not. I hate to say I, I've done a bunch of podcasts, but I'm not a podcast person because I don't find the time to listen to them. Because when I do have time to listen, I listen to music. I'm constantly listening to music. Um, if I'm, I with, have any I'm with you, I'm the same way. This is. I don't. In fact, I don't even listen to this podcast. Uh, <laughs> To be honest, uh, but well, a couple of things, right? Just a couple, right? I edit it, but I don't wear headphones, so I really don't know what's coming out or what's staying in. No, it's 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 completely um, random. No, I mean you you follow a couple of podcasts. I do, don't you? yes, I do. Not really on music, but yeah. Um, but I listen to a lot of music too. Well, I wow, <laughs> thank, thank you so much for giving us so much time, and we really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah. appreciate you having me and i i will listen to this and check you guys out now that you know send me the info because i really still don't even know but uh i i would like to listen to some podcasts it's just my wife listens to tons of them so um but i i would like to have the time and i am in the car so you know yes let me know what's going on and i'll check it out well we're we're a little different than other jazz podcasts and that it's not, you know, we don't, it's called the Jazz Bastards podcast because it's not all praise. I mean, there are some people who are awesome in the music, but, you know, for whatever reason, a recording didn't touch us or whatever. And we, you know, we try to be, we try to talk like fans, you know, it's like mm-hmm. this, this got to me. I like this or I didn't connect to this, you know, for whatever mm-hmm. reason. So we try to be honest about stuff. It's, it's more about taking jazz out of the museum and, and right. You know, just, you know, it's a music for appreciation, which means sometimes you have to take off the kid gloves and say, hey, these right. people are amazing musicians, but this didn't do anything for me at all right. know, for the following reasons. That needs um, to be that needs to be done because everything, again, because of PR and stuff, people are always the reviews. Oh, it's good now almost. 
Yeah, everything's a four-star review, and not everything is a four-star release. That's for sure. Yeah, that's for sure. So, yeah, so that's good. Well, I'll I'll definitely check you guys out, and I appreciate you having me on. Cool. Thanks so much for being with us, David. We really uh, we appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks again. All right, thanks, guys. And that concludes Jazz Bastard Podcast 188. Many thanks to saxophone player David Binney for coming on our show and talking with us and sharing his experiences. As always, you can reach us at pat at jazzbastard.com or mike at jazzbastard.com. You can look me up in Facebook or drop me a line on All About Jazz. The podcast can be downloaded from www.jazzbastard.com, from Apple Podcasts, from Stitcher, from Mixcloud, and it can be streamed at All About Jazz. Tune in next time as we look at four solo guitar works by Steve Kahn, Duck Baker, Joe Pass, and Leo Ketke. Until next time, take care. <laughs>